Hi again, this is Witch Hassle. Let's get to work. Hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Witch Hassle, a show talking to practitioners and scholars about the work of witchcraft and finding answers to listener questions about all things magic, occult, witchy, and wild-eyed. I'm your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and for our first episode, I am very pleased to bring you my interview with Sarah Lyons. Sarah is an activist and witch whose new book, Revolutionary Witchcraft, is available from Running Press. In it, she talks about what activists can learn from magic and the place witches have in saving the world from the forces of fascism and cruelty. We met in her apartment in Queens and had a lovely conversation about magic, politics, and a number of other things, and about 20 minutes into the recording, we had a a brief technical glitch that I can attribute to Mercury in retrograde because I am a witch, but all in all, the conversation proved deeply exciting, and wonderfully thoughtful. I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Here's my talk with Sarah. So, it's a hard question where to begin with this book, uh, besides saying congratulations, and I loved it, and it was great. Thank you. And hooray you. Um, I guess which came first? The witchcraft or the activist leftism politics? In my own life, um, definitely the witchcraft, I'd say. Well, I guess it's actually harder to piece out than, than that because um, on the one hand, in my own like personal life and stuff that I became interested in and you know discovered on my own, I think uh, witchcraft because mm. I can't really recall a time when I wasn't interested in the occult or magic or when you're like as a kid, you know, mythology and folktales and that kind of stuff. Um, and I, when I was really young, like 14 years old, that's when I kind of decided to dedicate myself to like magic and witchcraft, which at the time was like giving myself a baby, like Wiccan self-initiation, yeah. but I, it still counts, you know? So, um, I, cause that was the only game in town, of course, when, when right. I was young was like, you know, silver Raven wolf and, and Wicca stuff. So I... I've always been interested and I've, you know, it's been a lot, a lifelong passion and pursuit of mine, but I also grew up in a very political family. My mom was a politician for most of my young life for about eight years. And, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, like she was just very, my dad is very, you know, you know, politically informed and that kind of stuff, but my mom was very active in it. So like when I was a kid, I remember being brought to like the Democratic Convention and like all this kind of, yeah, I was, the, I remember. The Massachusetts one or like the big, the big one? I was, well, I was at the Massachusetts one when John Kerry was running in 2004, but I was in the, in the 90s, I would have been in whatever one was happening in, I think, Annapolis or Baltimore. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but they, I remember, I mean, I remember seeing like Hillary Clinton speaking when I was like maybe five years old, like really, really young, like, and just, and which is, here's a funny joke. All right. The first (laughs) time I ever see her, I don't know who the fuck this woman is. And my mom leans down and says, that's going to be the first female president. And we laugh and we laugh and we laugh some more (laughs) and we keep laughing. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, that's a weird memory of mine, but yes, I, uh, remember just always kind of having this, not like I couldn't escape politics as a young kid. So, I think it's probably inevitable that this book 
happened. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't know, like, it makes perfect sense to me that witchcraft and active politics and so on would go hand in hand so well just because, you know, I think, like, it kind of falls in that idea that Marx said that philosophy has heretofore explained the world, but the point is to change it, mm. which is very much, you know, witchcraft is applied philosophy. But uh, there seems to be a big disconnect between those two camps, mm. like the witches and, and, and the leftists. Why do you think that is? Well, I think on the left, for it, it's been... I think spirituality in general has been cut out of parts of the left because I think for so many people, religion caused so much pain and was tied up in, you know, the capitalist ruling class and was tied up in the state and especially in parts of Europe, you know, like uh, the church, the state and capital were all one big entity together. So yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, rightfully so attacked religion in the way that they saw it manifested in their lives because you know, that was part of the thing they were fighting against. And, you know, I, I see that and I think it makes, you know, sense from that kind of perspective. And yet, you know, uh, this doesn't go away. Like, we're not going to stop having spiritual experiences. We're not going to stop, like, interacting with things in this way. And I think, um, I really think the big break in the last couple years, just, like, watching politics and religion was really the new atheist movement i think that mm. that changed a lot and in a way that like we've kind of forgotten that it happened yeah. but like it i think it really was a sea change because it was to me and like where i'm sitting right now i think it was maybe the last gasp of that kind of like really aggressive like re we need to end religion in order to like end all the world's problems and yeah. it was the big culmination of that and, you know, so quickly a lot of the figures in that, you know, turn to the right because I think it, and I think that reveals a lot, right? Like yeah. I think it reveals that like, okay, not only is this not going to solve the problem of capitalism, not only is this going to not solve the problem of like oppression, but actually this can be used as a weapon just as anything else in the, it, like, it can be tied up with racism and colonialism just like any other Western philosophy, right? Or any other thing. So I think that watching that happen and people watching like, oh, wait, like atheism didn't bring this like leftist paradise that we thought it was going to, or like it didn't, divorcing religion from the project, whatever that is, is like not actually going to, you know, solve problems like we thought it was going to, and it's actually going to create quite a few. And so I think that on the one hand, it's, I think people watching that happen has had a, positive effects on the left and its approach to religion it's like at least talking about america in this moment right now we can go on about like you know uh liberation theology in south america and like right. all those other things right but uh i really think also that the, and i talk about this in the book but i think the election of donald trump really was like a lot of people's first real encounter with the power of magic mm. in a big public way because I think that Trump just like honestly used like chaos magic to get elected. That is so I've I've heard people bring this possibility up before in a sort of general kind of way, but like for folks who aren't like familiar with chaos magic and like tease that out maybe. So like how how would Trump's ascent sort of indicate a kind of chaos magic or embody a kind of chaos magic? Sure. So um there's this show, um oh my god, I'm gonna forget the name of it, but um 
there's a show on Netflix, Dirty Money, or, yeah, and they, in the last episode of it, there's this, they kind of go through Trump's life, right? They just kind of mm. go through uh, how he built his, like, empire, basically. And one of the things that they talk about very early on is that whenever he would go to, like, these high society events in New York or, like, one of, uh, you know, big parties, you know, that kind of stuff... He would always call up or be called up by, you know, one of the tabloids at the time, like or the New York Post or things like that. And he would say, OK, I'll tell you who was there. I'll tell you who was hitting on who. I'll say what trashy dress Anna Wintour was wearing, blah, blah, blah. But you have to put the word billionaire in front of my name. And they were like, OK, well, we want your stories. You're the only one willing to talk to us who was at that event. So, like, we'll do that. And so he wasn't a billionaire. Yeah. Most likely he wasn't. Uh, he most likely is not now, but he mostly, he may not even be a millionaire now, who knows? But he, by saying billionaire Donald Trump, you know, by saying that, like, I am this wealthy person, he created that reality. Chaos magic is this idea that reality is a malleable thing and that we are able to have a direct effect on not just our reality, but the reality around, like, not just our personal reality, but like actual reality because like sorry through our beliefs because reality is in large part a function of belief and that belief is a tool that we can use to fuck with that basically right and you you say a lot of interesting stuff about consensus reality in this book which is really lovely and the idea that like protest and and the way that we talk about politics is a way of of shifting that so what are some ways do you think that the average person who does not have access to tabloids and things like that can do things in a politically minded way to shift our consensus reality towards, I mean, what is, is, is the idea that we, we pretend we live in the world we want until it becomes reality or like, how would you apply this to like politics in general? Well, I think we have, it's a tricky thing, right? Because, and I, and I think I say this also in the book and I want to be very clear that like, I'm not advocating that people just pretend that global warming isn't real right like i'm not saying like oh just like keep acting like uh everything's fine and someday everything will be fine like that's not what i'm saying like i think we have to be very real about the problems that we are facing and like the actual material issues that are happening in our world and acknowledge that first if we're going to change it so like being honest about the you know whatever it is that you are passionate about fighting like actually looking at that actually like seeing the ways that that is being manifested in our world is I think the first step and very important because you don't want to get like delusional and just check out. Right. But I think the, the key like where changing consensus reality comes in is knowing that the way that things are right now, like have is not how they've always been and actually can be changed. Like Mm. right now in New York, we're seeing a lot of, um, the, bit, the issue du jour and the, and the thing that people are really upset about right now is um, the recent subway fare hikes and more police presence being added to the subways. And it's been horrible. Yeah. There were eight cops on my subway platform this morning. No fucking way. It's... Eight. Jesus. Uh, yeah. So it's it's just... It's literal overkill. It's, uh, it's awful. And a lot of people are mad about it. And I think... One of the tactics that's being used by activists right now is mass fare evasion. That you know, getting a bunch of people together to just like not pay the fare and just hop the turnstile. And I think that that is actually a really good example of changing consensus reality, right? Because it's like, well, why do we have to pay 
to get on the subway. Like we could just get on the subway mm. and it's kind of showing like, look, here we are just getting on the subway and not paying the fare. And that is a very, like, they're not sitting around saying like, oh, this fare hike isn't happening or like, oh, there's not cops on the subway. It's saying, no, like that's real, but it literally does not have to be that way. And we can enact together in a ritualistic way what a world would look like if that wasn't the case. And the more that we do that, the greater the chances that that world is actually going to become a reality. And I think that it's just, I, I love those protests because I think that it's a really great example of like public ritual magic as like a political, mm. uh, as a political act. Yeah. That's really, so that's a distinction that I think is really useful that you, that we might have to talk about for a second. Just mm. like when we talk about like a public ritual that is done for a political purpose, mm -hmm. you are not necessarily talking about like five people, like 200 people in a room, candles are lit. They are, they are invoking Baphomet to, to, to kill uh, Lindsey Graham or something like that. Gentlemen to evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. Like you, yeah. you, something that is, I think amazing in this book is the way that you actually give little edible snippets of, you know, the history of say act up or, mm -hmm. um, the, the battle in Seattle or something like that. Thank you. Yeah. So like, when you are conceiving of a political ritual, you're conceiving of something else. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and that's, that was something I really wanted to do differently with this book. Cause there's a lot of books I think being written right now or already written on uh, political magic or magic as a, a political tool. And, you know, I, th I think there's a lot of like great stuff in those books and there's, you know, smart things that people can tease out of them. But I didn't want to write about like, uh, literal like people in robes chanting and lighting candles like you say right like yeah. I wanted to talk about like okay if everything around us is magic like if everything around us is a function of magic and a function of belief and a function of of power and these things interplaying together okay then everything is magic I don't have to find you know, I don't, I don't have to go and find that specific ritual where people were literally saying, like, we are actually doing magic right now. I can find instances where people maybe didn't know that they were doing magic, but you look at it and you're like, that is magic. That is, a po that is political magic happening there. What's a good example of that? Like, you can, like, just from history or from, like, something to say from the book. Sure. So, um, well, you brought up, I, I, I try to bring up examples that people might not have heard of before because I think that... Uh, when I wrote this book, I was kind of anticipating this being a kind of one-on-one book for a lot of people. That This yeah. was maybe going to be a lot of people's first book on either witchcraft or activism or both. Mm. So I wanted to give people examples that they probably hadn't encountered before and might not encounter too much in the future. So I wanted to talk about like the Zapatistas in Mexico and mm. like you said, the battle in Seattle, which is like... I'm so obsessed. This is like, this is what a fucking nerd I am. I'm really obsessed with like 90s activism because it's a very weird yeah. time in the history of like the left in the United States. Yeah. And so I'm like, I, that's, that's probably the weirdest example I use because everyone's like, what the fuck is that? But I'm like, I'm so interested in like, uh, the type of activism that was going on in the 90s because it's just so weird to me and, and fascinating. Um, but I, yeah, so the, the battle in Seattle, I think is a good, I use it as sort of an anti-example because basically the World Trade Organization was set to have its final meeting of the millennium in Seattle in the very end of 1999 and like the end of November, beginning of December. And 
Uh, people were understandably kind of mad about that for a lot of reasons. The WTO is this like global organization that whose job is to manage trade, and it was kind of the you know it it was one of the big uh, Clintonian like neoliberal. It's a symbol of that kind of politics, right? A very big global end of history neoliberalism, right? So people are mad about it for a lot of different reasons and come together like for, you know, there's environmentalists, there's labor, there's, uh, you know, gender equality. There's all, there's all this stuff happening. And the people, like people actually shut down the whole city and like got the meeting canceled. And that's incredible. And, And it was like the news all over the world. Like people, it you know, it finally got people talking about, you know, the WTO and world trade and like all this stuff in a way that people weren't talking about before. And that's all excellent. But in the long term, they didn't succeed. Like WTO is still around. Global trade has only grown. Inequality has only worsened. So like, how are you able to pull off such a momentary win and like literally shut an American city down yet still lose in the, in the long term? Right. And I wanted to frame it in a magical sense because I think that like going back to consensus reality, it maybe was a time when like they didn't do enough to shift that. Like the consensus reality wasn't quite shifted enough. There wasn't enough of a global movement or a, a, a like what was the reality that they were even trying to shift? You know, the, yeah. at, the at the end of it, everyone goes back to their separate camps instead of staying together mm. in this multi faceted movement right and that's i think why 90s activism is so fascinating to me i know i'm going on a tangent but like because i you know because it's it's lacking that like left politics and that like anti-capitalist critique where it's like oh man if you had only had a bit more of the language like if you had only had a bit more of like the right words if you had only like come together a little bit more maybe like we wouldn't be living in hell world right now (laughs) and it's easy to look back and say that but it's it's, i think it's just such an interesting and crucial time but yeah so i wanted when when i was using examples in the book i really wanted to use stuff that was like a lot of people talk about when they talk about political magic they'll talk about something like operation sea lion like the famous like when hitler tried to invade britain famously a bunch of witches got together and like uh assembled a coven to you know, try to stop that from happening. And all of a sudden this huge storm kicks up and uh, the Nazis are not able to invade Britain. And it's probably the reason that Hitler was never able to get it, gain a foothold in Britain. A lot of people use examples like that where it's like, okay, here's people literally doing magic yeah. to against like a political figure. And I think it's a good example. I think it's interesting. But I wanted to expand people's idea of what magic and what politics are through mm. the examples that I'm using. And I think the book does a really immense job of that so well done thank you um but at the same time you i mean you imagine this is a 101 for both activism and, and magic and there are some really lovely little bits in here about you know your first magical initiation how to do ancestor work how to do um talking to land spirits and things like that and i'm, I'm curious because i feel like a lot of people they 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 approach magic and they really want a strong sense of you know, give me the recipe for the thing. Tell me the steps I need to take. Who do I need to pay money to to do this? And yours is much more open-ended. Thank you. It's much more malleable and adaptable. So I'm curious, like, if someone, say, wanted to get involved in having a connection with land spirits, the spirits of the land, do they need to go into the woods? Do they need to 
take a six hour bus trip to um, the Forest Primeval in Hackensack, New Jersey. I actually don't know how urban Hackensack is. It's just the first place in New Jersey that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it, it depends. I, I think, first of all, no. I want to back up a little bit and I touch on something you said because I'm really happy that you noticed the way that I, I put the examples together when I, and, and, uh, and exercises together. When I was writing the book, I was I was trying to think back to like when I was a kid reading you know books on magic for the first time and I when I was young I always thought that like what I wanted was like the key of Solomon and I always thought I wanted like some big complicated book that was going to like give me all of these recipes and spells for like summoning demons and like I thought I, that was what I thought I wanted right yeah, yeah. and looking back what I actually needed was a compass and what I needed was like a way to navigate all of the books that I was reading and like how to put them together and, mm. and, and technical mishap starting again in three, two. Um, okay. So let's see how well, if you said a thing right now, if I were to say a thing, okay, that's great. Um, okay. So do you want anything to hold like a stand or right. a book to lean it against or something? And I hope these aren't like the ashes of someone or something that I just... No, it's leftover Halloween candy. That's perfect. Okay. So, something I really liked about this book <laughs> is that it, instead of, you know, I think a lot of people when they approach magic for the first time, they want recipes, they want how-tos that are very specific, that are very sort of, you know, uh, tell me what to do step by step. Um, exactly what are the sigils what are the what are the ingredients I need etc um, and this is much more a general kind of direction yeah thank you for saying that I um, when I was writing the book I was thinking about thinking back to when I was young and reading books on magic and that kind of stuff and what I thought I wanted when I was a kid was or what I did want was uh, you know, some ancient grimoire, like the Key of Solomon, and like something really like intense and would give me like the spells and the recipes and the and the way to summon demons and like all this stuff. And, uh, you know, that's fun. But I think what I really was looking for was like a guide or a compass to make sense of all of the stuff that I was reading, right? Because, uh, you know, especially when we were younger, it's not so easy to make sense of where all of this is coming from. It's not a unified tradition where it's like, this happened and then this happened and that happened and this is like all a linear, easy to understand thing. Like the nature of magic is such as that it's it's weird and we don't always know where stuff is coming from and we don't always know the origin of certain things and uh, you know, the relationship between stuff is, is not always a clear line and yeah. sometimes there's just outright lies about ancient goddess cults worshiping diana and like there's a lot of books with that and so you don't know at first that that's not true yeah yeah <laughs> there's like so, so i think what i wanted to do is just be like okay if this is people's first book on magic or if this is one of your first books on magic i want to give you a way to look at the other books that you're going to be reading going on and i want to give you and if this is your first book on activism like i want to give you the right like language and like uh deftly and sort of subtly introduce people to like leftist concepts without being like well if you really read Marx you would understand you know so I wanted to like uh you know 
put those in in like subtle and fun ways so that people kind of have that uh, downloaded into them. Yeah. While they go out and like learn other stuff. Mm. Um. So thank you. Yeah, I I put a lot of work into making it sort of like more of a guide than like a bunch of spells and stuff. And like I, that's something I still might write. Like depending on how this book goes and what the reception to it is and what I feel needs to come next. Like I might write a spell book or I might write something that is more formulaic and like, okay, here's, here's stuff that you can do. But I think it's important to give people the tools to individualize their practice Mm. um, and give people kind of the broad ideas that they need to sort of begin to make their own craft and their own practice up, you know? And not feel, yeah. So that actually dovetails, dovetails, dovetails? That dovetails well <laughs> with something I wanted to talk to you about in reading this book. And so it, it's with the sort of rise of a return to mainstream popularity for witchcraft, and especially the sort of commerce that comes with that, you know, people selling crystals that supposedly will change the mood of the room or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, there seems to be a move toward the idea of selling you witchcraft as a product. Mm. And I feel like this book pushes back against that a little bit. Yeah, I tried to. And like the most, um, again, like I didn't want to write a book that was just like, listen up motherfuckers. Like here's why you're all doing things wrong. I wanted to be like fun and I wanted to meet people where they are, I think. So I... Yeah, but I but I do feel very strongly about the commodification of witchcraft and the commodification of magic in general right now. You know, I've seen people recently like decrying like, oh, we should just abandon witchcraft, like it's become too commodified, like we need a new word for this, like we need to like uh, you know, switch things up and like and you know, stop uh calling ourselves witches because it's become too commodified. And I think if people want to do that, that's fine, but I think that you know, witchcraft has survived empires. Like, it will survive capitalism. Like, it... Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm I, not too worried about, like, witchcraft being ruined by, by what's happening to it right now. But I do think that we have to be really cautious and really critical of witchcraft's success in the mainstream right now. Because if you are able to not just survive, but thrive under capitalism, either... Like, capitalism has determined that you either are not a threat or it has learned to make you a profitable enterprise, right? Mm. Um, And it has learned how to exploit you. So I think that the witchcraft that is becoming, you know, popular and it's... I'm trying to, I'm trying to be like... I'm trying to think of a, of a way to say this, right? Because... On the one hand, I do think it is, like, a, a largely positive archetype for, you know, people to be seeing out there in the press. It's certainly, I think, like, a much more positive uh, role model for young people, like, young girls to be, like, seeing and seeing in themselves. But I also think, you know, all right, well, how much of a challenge is this really? Like, how radical is this archetype right now, really, when, like, apparently it's perfectly fine to put pentagrams on you know, leggings and it's perfectly fine to put sigils on jackets and that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, what, what are we doing? (laughs) And like, what, like, 
it is this yeah like i don't know so I, I, I get very frustrated when i look at it because it to me magic and witchcraft come from like the power of that comes from a relationship and it comes from mm. uh a, it to me one of the things that really drove me to magic when i was young and what what has kept me with it for so long is uh it really pushes back, I think, against like nihilism and alienation, like because there's this inherent, you know, meaning and there's this inherent dialogue that you have to engage in in the world if you're doing magic. You know, things don't just happen just because and oh, lol, that's so stupid. It's like no, like there, you are in conversation with the universe. If that happened, there's a reason, and we have to like interrogate that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that capitalism on the other hand gets all of its power from alienation and from nihilism and from beating you down and making you isolated and alone and so it depresses me a little bit when i see witchcraft being turned into that because to me it's like no this is the thing that gets you out like this is the thing that fights against that (laughs) don't don't let it don't let them take it so when it comes to like cultivating the sort of relationships that are at the heart of witchcraft mm-hmm. these are not necessarily just you know interpersonal relationships between you and another standard human being kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> what what kinds of relationships are we talking about and like how do you do it how do you how do you make friends with the universe how do you make friends with the universe we'll just start putting googly eyes on everything and that's <laughs> that sounds great actually right like that's i just that's your that's your animism 101 is just start putting googly eyes on everything like hello desk Oh, Sarah, <laughs> how are you doing today, Desk? Just turn into to Pee-wee's house, right. <laughs> Pee-wee Herman's house. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, I think, it, I mean, for everyone, it's going to be different, right? Like, I, um, I think with some people, it can, it, it can make the most sense to like start with other people and then work to animals, and then work to plants, and then work to objects. Some people, it works better like start with objects and then work up to people, like whatever yeah. you know, whatever way you want to go. But. Um, yeah, I think recognizing that, like, I mean, I consider myself an animist. I consider, you know, us to live in a world in, imbued with spirits and filled with spirits. And uh, that's really trippy and it's a big mindfuck because it's like, okay, well, if humans aren't, if consciousness isn't, like, contained just to humans and the human brain, like, what is it? And, like, who else has it? And, you know, we, we know for a fact that, like, you know, perception changes the nature of a thing, that looking at something changes it, like on a very like nano level. So I don't know. It's, it's a whole head trip to really go down, but I think we should sort of embrace it more in magic because I think, uh, well, sorry, let me back up. The question is how to start doing that. And I think like with a lot of magic, if you're getting into it or just starting to get into it, like find a thing that you find interesting and stick with that at first, like find, find a thing you want to have a relationship with and start there. You're like, you know, you're not going to be... Deep, not wide. Deep, not wide, yeah. At, at least, especially in the beginning. Like, okay, you know, you have a plant, you have a house plant in your in your house and you want to have a relationship with it. Like, talk to it. Meditate with it. See what it likes. Like, that, that tree outside your apartment or that tree outside your house. Like, sit and have your coffee with it and talk to it about your day, you know. Start cultivating, like you know see how it changes depending on the weather and the uh you know time of year and that kind of stuff and start to really form you know you know this the pen that you write with every day start to form a really close relationship with stuff and and 
watch and learn from it as if it was a, another person and not just a, a thing, right? How do we learn to listen to something like a tree? Like what is what is the because you you talk about it in the book so this isn't just me yeah, yeah, yeah. saying this out of nowhere but like, like how like, do we talk to trees right, right. <laughs> yeah how do we learn to listen to the tree that is the self that is also the universe that is also the tree yeah um but actually though how do you listen to a tree what's it like what's it like listening to trees um I I think it's gonna depend again on the person and the tree and the environment that you're in because so I, I grew up in the woods so it was very easy for me to find trees to hang out with and talk to and be around because I was always with them right yeah um and you can't get away from them can't get away from them and that's New England my God yeah <laughs> but that alone like right there like I uh, there were trees growing up that were very I got this immediate energy from like okay this is a very friendly tree this is a nice tree mm. and there are trees that like just like you say like you can't get away from them you know they're everywhere it's and there's this creepy feeling and i think that sounds like such a subtle thing but i i think i think a lot of us have these kind of um intuitive feelings when we are presented with objects or rooms or mm. trees or people and we're kind of used to listening to our intuition when it comes to people like oh i get a bad vibe from this person i'm gonna like sit on the other end of the subway right or i'm gonna yes. i'm gonna keep this conversation short but for some reason we don't think of objects or plants or animals in the same way necessarily like oh i get a weird vibe from this tree uh or i get a really happy vibe from this bush like there's i think we have to, I think, listening first to that inner voice, like, oh, whenever I walk past this tree, I feel the color red. I I get this immediate impulse. And following that and going down the rabbit hole of that feeling, like, okay, I always think of this song when I walk past this tree. What if I listen to that song next time I walk past it? What if I listened to that song and then meditated with that tree and then what would the tree tell me and then mm. oh is it happy because you know long ago these two people proposed to each other under this tree long ago somebody planted this tree because they were in love like what's the story right and i think that that's the you know that is like a way to kind of build it into to follow that thread is just maybe it's maybe i think this way because i, I think kind of cinematically and i think kind of like like a movie sometimes so I, I get very strong impressions from things and very strong like feelings from things but I think a lot of people get those feelings and I think it's important just to like honor that and follow that yeah you talk about the idea of doing ancestor work mm -hmm. in your book and I think there's a there's a reluctance among a lot of particularly sort of like left-leaning white people <laughs> to do ancestor work because there's this understanding that you know if you are, say, a white American, then that means probably your ancestors, if not, you know, holding the kinds of, of negative uh, views that we, that, you know, might have been like a product of their time, mm. however much that, you know, absolves them of anything. But like, actively we're probably participating in maybe some of the most terrible things of, of, of American or world history, you know, mm. the genocides, the slave trade, the yeah. whole the whole gambit of, of diabolical un, unacceptability. So what would you say to someone who has these reluctances? Sees. 
the noun form of role, who's nervous about that sort of thing, or says, ancestor work, not for me, not going to do it. My ancestors are probably all garbage all the way down. <laughs> well, um, I think it's a very valid feeling. Like, I want to, if people have, you know, garbage families or don't know their families or are pretty sure that they, their ancestors did some bad things. Like, I, I know my family tree a little bit, and, like, I know I've got some shit ancestors, or I've, I've got ancestors that were perhaps well-intentioned, but actually harmed a lot of people, right? And, that, like, that kind of stuff, right? So I, uh, I think, and I've got ancestors that, you know, maybe were separated by generations, but if they knew each other, would not get along, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I think it's very... I want to validate that feeling that people have because, you know, it's real. A lot of us are right now, especially I think in our generation, are struggling under the weight of past generations and uh, kind of don't want anything to do with it. But I think that that struggle and that weight is ex- actually exactly why, especially in a political context, why we have to uh, begin to strengthen our relationship with our ancestors and begin a dialogue with our ancestors because let's say your ancestors were complicit in really awful stuff that happened. Like, let's say they, they did participate in like the slave trade or they were just basically racist or they were super sexist or something like that. Like those ghosts are still hanging around. Like we still are living with the legacy of colonialism and the slave trade and genocide and like all these awful things. And those ghosts haven't gone away. And I think that part of ancestor work can be just the work to, you know, talk to your ancestors and say, look, you need to go. Like, thank you for trying as best you did. Thank you. But you, you need to like move on from here right now or bringing in the positive ancestors who maybe didn't get their shot to bring in like that healing energy. Right. Like Mm. I think that uh, a lot of white people have a resistance to doing ancestor work for very valid reasons, but I think actually it's really important for white people to talk to our ancestors and be like, grandpa, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, I think that that's important. I also think, you know, on, on a positive way, like not just talking about the bad ancestors, but talking about like the good ancestors, like, you know, you can always skip a couple generations. If you want to go back to like farther down the line, if you don't want to talk to the ones that you know, weren't great, you can always go back and like, I, I guarantee you, you have some cool great 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 grandma who was actually a witch and you didn't know it right like i guarantee you have a cool ancestor in your line um and they want you to succeed like as spiritual beings and as you know people engaged in magic like there's very there's there's a lot of spirits and they range from indifferent to positive to spirits that really want to fuck you up your ancestors really want to help you because they fought and died so that you could be here right now Mm -hmm. so they want to see you succeed and that's like just an awesome ally to have on your side it's just spirits that want you to be happy right like that's great um and we should be utilizing and like working with them an army of cool ghosts um and actually you make the point in the book that like when we, when we talk about ancestors and the ancestors we, we, we would work with, these aren't necessarily your blood relatives, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that, like, ancestry is not just about blood. The same way that, like, we recognize that, like, family can be not just about blood. Like, family can be a found thing. Family can be uh, adopted. There's ancestry, by the same token, extends beyond 
blood. I think I use the example of like, you know, if you're really into music, like using like uh, an artist that inspired you who mm. maybe has passed on is like a really, that, that there is an ancestor of spirit. I think if you're an American, like guess what? The founding fathers are kind of our collective ancestors. Like that's like a big, that's like America's ancestral spirits. They're not great, but that's kind of exactly what I mean. Like the, yeah. the, we have to kind of work with them and either be like, hey guys, like your time your time is over or like you know we have to we have to acknowledge it at the very least right Mm. uh yeah and and that can be a way to begin ancestor work if you either don't want to work with your family or don't really know your family too well your family history think about where you are in life right now and think about the you know the people who have passed on who inspired you to live the life that you're living or the people who maybe were in your profession before you were. If you're like a writer, like think about writers of the past that inspire you. If you're uh, an actor, think about maybe actors of the past that inspire you, that like push you every single day. Like that is an ancestor of yours and you can work with them and you can talk to them. Mm. I want to talk about initiations because I think initiations are a huge part of this book mm-hmm. and they're really important. And you mentioned that the election of 2016 was probably a big initiation for a lot of people. But how do you conceive of initiation in like a political sense and in a witchcrafty type sense? Cool. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I, so I think initiation to me is a profound shift in consciousness. And yeah, I think that that's a good concise way, like a profound shift in consciousness, often like a consciously made shift in consciousness, like, and a lasting one because you can shift consciousness by just getting like a little drunk right but like you can like you can you can shift consciousness in a lot of different ways but i think initiation is kind of you are a different person the day after you are initiated you know um there's a fundamental change in you that has taken place and that can be the result of something that happens to you like you know a near-death experience or an alien abduction or something like that or it could be Uh, a consciously made choice to initiate into a tradition or if I think I bring up stuff like, you know, uh, confirmations and bar mitzvahs and things like that are initiation ceremonies. Right. Uh, And they're not always perhaps treated that way. Like I think, like I think in our society, we're not always taught to look for initiations and we're not always taught to like, that that's something that we need but Mm. i think it's like something that we profoundly need like we need something we need uh whether by accident or by uh ritual ways to enter us into the world and like formalize like okay i'm here like i am like i am a conscious actor in my life right right i think i kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier but i and maybe this is something i actually want to ask you too but i noticed a profound shift in how easy it was to talk about magic post 2016 yeah like i did you experience this because i feel like everyone i ask has had a similar story i mean it's funny i feel like with 2016 and all that business there was this moment where you really saw a profound break in society between essentially people who looked at the various happenings of that time and said oh you know, all the old institutions, they're completely meaningless, there's nothing there, like, honestly, like, what's weird is, like, I, I was fine with talking about magic before then, but the thing that I got sort of, I have more ease talking about now is is Lenin, honestly, <laughs> and just, like, the idea of, like, Lenin, like, when Lenin's, like, you know, 
an election in a bourgeois democracy, this is my Latin voice apparently, yeah. <laughs> in a bourgeois democracy is basically just, you know, uh, it, it's a choice between members of the ruling class and which one will be able to, 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 to rule everyone else. You know, it's democracy yeah. for a small sliver. Um, and being like, yeah, you know what, yeah, okay, uh-huh. Um, and, uh, but yeah. I had yeah. no idea that Lennon was from Nebraska. That's that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. It's, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska is actually like a... A, a derivation of just Lenin, Nebraska, but um, it's a protectorate under the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh my god! Only well, I mean, Alabama almost was for a second there um, when that whole like when Stalin offered to send the Red Army to back up like uh, protesting sharecroppers. But oh my um, god, that's another story. That's a- uh, but yeah, 2016. It seemed like a lot of people were like, either you say that the fundamental institutions that govern America um, are only as valuable as everyone agreeing that they all work. Mm -hmm. And the second someone says, I'm just going to not pay attention to that, like, suddenly they just disappear. Which seems to be the sort of, like, Trump thing of, like, you can just... You can just pick. Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. And then suddenly, there's nothing anyone can really do about it. Like the uh, the idea that like the Democrats for a while were like, if we try to do an impeachment and the Senate doesn't impeach him because they're all Republicans and they're going to reject it out of hand, then we lose the threat of impeachment, even though that th- we are acknowledging and saying that the threat is an empty threat. Um, so there are people who sort of like said like all of this is gone and then there are the people who who clung to it as hard as humanly possible and started making um you know uh vote of candles of robert Mueller and 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 saying you know i'm still with her exactly that's what it was like it, it was very much a kind of i forget what the book is called now but they're like there, there was a sociological study of a cult that was an apocalyptic cult and when the apocalypse didn't happen oh the millerites um is but, it is it I mean, that's one of them. Oh. That, that's a great one. But this one was like, I think, like, this was like, this book might maybe come out in the 70s or the 80s, and it was okay. with a contemporary cult of that time. Oh. Like, sitting with them and being like, so what do you do now? Mm. And apparently the, the sort of takeaway point was like, when the prophecy fails, you just cling to the prophecy even harder. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, do you, do you find that people have an easier time talking about magic post the disaster of 2016? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- so I agree with, like, everything you just said. I think that, like, yeah, it was... I think I think that yeah. So two points. So yes, I think it's. I noticed pre twenty sixteen, if I ever told, I was very reluctant to talk to people about uh, magic and witchcraft and that kind of part of my life. Like it was something I kind yeah. of kept hidden from a lot of people. And if I told people about it, I always felt like I had to couch it in like a history lesson, basically. Like mm. oh, like you know in the olden times and like I felt I always felt like I had to justify it by making it like smart right yeah and intelligent like a proper thing to do right and I think that that was because you know you talk for me at least talking to people before 2016 if you told someone that you believed in magic or that you practiced magic they were like what like what the fuck are you talking about and I think after 2016 it got a lot easier to just be like I practice magic okay what does that mean well, it means that reality is a malleable thing and is basically made up of a function of belief. And yeah. people are like, oh, okay, I get that now. Yeah. Because we saw it happen. Like, we yeah. saw that in action. That's a, yeah, because like before 2016, I feel like every time I talked about it with anybody, I had to couch it in terms of quantum mechanics to make yes. it seem like even palatable at all. Like, oh, no, it's just, you know, 
Like, uh, there, every electron's in a superposition until it's observed, and so if you just extend that to, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial made, <laughs> made random number generators break in, for a while. It's really weird. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Wait, is that true? Um, I remember hearing that a while back, that, like, during the O.J. Simpson trial, when everyone in the country was essentially focused in a very emotional way on one thing for an extended period of time, like, random number generators. Like, if you had, like, a binary random number generator, instead of, like, sort of evening out at zero and one, it would suddenly just do, like, all ones for, like, a day or something like that. Wow. That's cool. Um, But, yeah, so I thought that, like, it was, you know, watching 2016, it was... It was an initiation because a lot of people just had a real breaking moment where, like, everything that they thought about America was suddenly different because nobody thought that Trump was going to get elected, right? I, like, I remember the evening of the election and I remember the, the day after so very vividly. And I like I remember riding the subway the next day and it was just silent. Like I remember yeah. the entire the entire walk to work was like almost dead silent. And this is like the middle of New York City, right? Yeah. Like nobody on the subway was talking. Nobody on the street was talking. Like all you would hear was like the sound of cars going by. It was yeah. the eeriest day, right? The next day. And so okay, when you're initiated, it's a it's an embodied and a lived experience that shows you that reality is different than how you thought it was. And now you can't go back from that. Like, I remember the first time I saw a ghost, right? And it was like, I believed in ghosts before that, but it was such a chilling experience that ever since then, I'm like, no, like, like reality is just different than how we think it is, right? Right. Like, there's just, there's just shit going on that we have no fucking clue about. There's like no going back once you... Yeah, and I think that that was people watching Trump get elected was just like, okay, if this is happening right now, like, everything that I thought is different. Like, there's a... there That reality was there beforehand, but now people are into that reality. And I think that the problem comes when you resist that you are actually in that reality. Mm. When you try to go back to how you were before the initiation. And it's yeah. like trying to go back and wear the clothes that you were wearing when you were a child, right? Like, it's not going to help you. Yeah. And you can still look back fondly on those memories of, you know, pre-2016, but, yeah. like, that's not where we are. And that wasn't the reality then either. And you have to be able to lean into that initiation and lean into that new reality or else you're just going to end up fucking everything up even more for yourself and keep yourself stuck in a place that is not good and that you need to move past. Yeah. And, well, okay, so you you posit 2016 as being sort of the big initiation for a lot of people, maybe Mm -hmm. for, like, the country as a being, if Mm. you want to do, like, a big, wide-scale animism there. Um, But your initiation, at least in the book that you talk about, or one of your really big ones, was when you went to Standing Rock. Mm. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? Yeah, so... um, I, so I want to say before I dive in, like, I want to be very conscious about talking about Standing Rock, like, as as a white person. Like, I don't want to just be like, wow, it was this great experience, and it was, like, basically Coachella, but it was, like, a little more serious, you know? Like, uh, it was, like, real. Um, I don't want to talk about it, it, like, a like someone who was a, a tourist there. I think that, um, I was there for only a very short amount of time, just a couple days, and, you know, I was able to leave and, like, return to safety here in the big city. Yeah. And I think that my job as somebody who went and came back and is able to, like, continue to live life in, like, a pretty stable way is uh, to be a witness to it. So that's what I want to... That's the intention I bring when I talk about Standing Rock is, like, being a witness to what I saw there and keeping that spirit sort of alive in people's consciousness. So, basically, I... <laughs> so, 2016 election happens 
And like two weeks later, I get fired. So it was great. Uh, And I was just like, cool. Like I, Trump is president and I don't have a job. This is cool. Uh, And I remember like an hour after I got fired, I was hanging out with my friend who was also fired the same day. Long story. Great job. Great boss. Love it. Uh, But we were, we were hanging out and I got a call from a friend who's like, hey, a friend of mine, this like indigenous activist is heading out to Standing Rock. Do you want to go? And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Yes. Like, let me go. Because I had been, I had been as involved as I could be here in New York. Like I had done like a fundraiser and that kind of stuff. And I was following it all very closely, but I never thought that I was actually going to, you know, go there and help out there. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Like my life just fell apart. Like, let's do it. So the next day I got in the van and drove to North Dakota. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty fucking wild. Um, so we were out there bringing supplies and like uh, food and blankets and stuff like that. And it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life because one, it was probably the closest I've ever come to actually getting to witness what an anti-capitalist or non-capitalistic society looks like. Mm. Like nobody's paying for anything. Everything is done in like a collective way. Like people are there to help each other and everything is a function of like, it, the people who can help help the people who cannot be helped or who, who cannot help themselves or are helping people in another way. And it's all like this mutual, it was a very mutual society, a society based on like justice and spirituality. Like you, there's signs all around the camp that were like, you know, this is an act of prayer, like by being here, by doing, by just by putting your body on the line for a sacred site, that is an act of prayer. Like that is an yeah. embodied prayer. So that was really amazing. But on the other hand, like you, you're walking out of this camp and everyone's happy and helping each other. And like, there's just so much love. And then you look to the horizon and there's like uh, snipers in the hills and there's drones and there's tanks and there's armored vehicles. And you kind of realize that the normalcy, you kind of realize that the normalcy and the peace and the, yeah, like what I consider normal in my day-to-day life is a product of violence and it is kept alive by violence. Like Mm. right here sitting in this room, like the reason we are able to do this is because of immense violence and like evil has happened and is happening right now. Yeah. You, you see the, the things holding up the world. You see the spokes and the, the pillars holding up the world that we're in all of a sudden you're like, Oh, okay. Like the reason that we are here right now, like the reason America exists is because of these guys on the Hill. It's because of these snipers and these cops and these, uh, you know, mercenaries and that kind of stuff and like the west was never one we're still committing a genocide like it was just like wow like this is still happening this never this didn't end this is an ongoing campaign and an ongoing uh, venture and i think that witnessing those two things like that dichotomy really shifted my consciousness in a profound way and i look and i look at that as an initiation for myself let's say someone feels even now uninitiated but they know they know that like there's a veil here and there's an awareness that they want Mm. do you have any like recommendations or suggestions for someone who's like i still need to like really see the world i'm in Mm. i mean i give i give a little initiation ritual in the book so there is one there's 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 one there but if you want a more intense one i think it i think it depends on what you want to shift about your consciousness because i think also initiation is not a one-time thing initiation like keeps happening like i mm. i felt again like i had a similar moment to standing rock about a year ago when i was um 
I was protesting outside like an ICE detention center and I saw people being loaded into vans to get deported. And that was like, wow, like we live in a profoundly evil society, you know, like there's like fascism is alive and well. Like, so there's, you know, it depends on what you want to do. If you're trying to shift, if you're trying to initiate yourself politically, I would say, think about what it is about your consciousness that you're trying to shift. Like, what is it that you still are having trouble grasping? And really try to put yourself into a position where that can be grappled with in a lived way. Like, if you are still um, grappling with the idea of, you know, capitalism and being like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but like, I just can't imagine a world without that. Like, try to put yourself into a position where you will see perhaps what a world without it would look like or see mm. the absolute evil of it apparent to you. Like, I'm trying, it's, it's, it's hard to come up with an example, but I think consciously deciding to stand up in this way like i mean get arrested like yeah. i don't know like literally like get arrested like i don't know how else to say it like i uh i mean maybe don't like but this is obviously dependent on like you know you're if you're able-bodied if you're if you're not uh you know your immigration status all of that kind of stuff but if you are able to and you think that it's gonna like not have a profoundly negative impact on your life like I think getting arrested is actually a really fucking, like, it's part of, like, a mass action or something like that, um, really is a way to kind of get inside the guts of the world and really see, like, how all of this functions. I was arrested last year and it had a really profound effect on me. Um, Right, yeah. yeah. It, like, really fucked me up. Um, Because it was was crazy. Um, I I remember when you got, like... You you went to a birthday party right after you got out of jail. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, like the next day, right? Yeah, yeah, that was fucked up. Yeah, because I, yeah, I was. This is kind of a tangent, but I was arrested on the Manhattan Bridge with a couple other people for trying to do a banner drop. And we, if you're if you're arrested on a critical structure in the city of New York because of events in this city's history, you have to be considered as a potential terrorism suspect. So I was held for over six hours in question by the NYPD counterterrorism unit and the FBI. It was very scary, um, but I'm fine. But it was it was a real like, oh man, like this is how fucked up the justice system is. Like this is this is how, this is the gears turning, you know? Yeah. And this is, this is how this all works. So, okay, that's, that's one way to do it, uh, getting arrested. But I think, and I think magically, kind of a similar way like what is it like if you still can't quite believe like if you still can't quite believe in magic if you still can't quite believe in uh spirits or spells or what have you i think really trying to put yourself in like like really go for the big magic like really like start like i think honestly like seeing magic work in your life is a great way to kind of initiate yourself in a, in a subtle way because it's like damn this shit is real yeah. um but yeah I, I i think that finding ways to embody and, and live through these experiences is probably like my best advice okay and i think it's very easy for someone who like sees the deep and and entrenched evil at the heart of American capitalism, American power, things like that. And to sort of, you know, it's that Lovecraftian thing. You look at it and your mind just kind of balks and you you despair. Yeah. Um, so what is, what is a good antidote to that kind of despair? Or like, what would you... Because it's, it's one thing to be like, 
like let this radicalize you rather than lead you to disparage I think it's the old you know uh, needle point that, that circulates around the internet yeah <laughs> but like what what would one do what do you do as a person in this world who has been through the uh, intestines of the legal system you know it's it's so interesting because I'm actually kind of going through this right now where like I thought I had a pretty good handle on how affected I was by all of this and I, I thought that I was like you know like I've come to a good like self-care routine where like I can like you know look at this stuff and not despair and like I can I cannot freeze up or something like that but then if I've been looking I've been like doing a lot of interrogating of my life recently and it's like damn like capitalism has really fucked me up like yeah. just knowing how I think I think for the last couple years like just knowing how evil kind of everything sort of subtly is is okay so let me back up like i i think that capitalism is evil and like i'm not just saying that as like a flippant thing like or uh like a shorthand or something like that like i'm not a moral relativist i really very strongly believe that there is such a thing called evil and like we need to be able to say that evil is a thing that exists in the world and like i think we need to be able to call like, I think we need to be able to call Hitler evil. I think we need to be able to call rape evil. Like, I think we need to be able to call concentration camps evil. Like, there's just certain things that I think that, like, we need that kind of moral clarity. But the thing is that capitalism is fucking evil. And because it pervades everything that we do, the, the real evil of it is that it makes all of us have to participate in evil. And it makes all of us have to engage with a certain level of evil every single day like right now we are wearing clothes that were made by slaves like right now we are living on we are living on land that was created by genocide like yeah we like every single thing that we touch has a has a tinge of that and i think for the last couple years that's paralyzed me sometimes like from making choices or trying to have as little impact on the world as possible because i'm just like okay well if everything is evil i'm gonna try to like back up and not not try to engage with this as much as I can. But I think that recognizing how all-encompassing it is and really sitting with that is actually very freeing in a, hmm. on, in a way because it's like, okay, every everything is fucked. Everything is evil. I have literally no choice but to rebel against all of this and like just actually dive thoroughly into the world and fuck shit up because like everything has to change and like in whatever way you can in your life just being like no i'm not i'm not going to engage with that i'm going to change that i'm going to try to make make it so that i am not complicit in this fucked up evil system that we live under um and that's going to depend on you know person to person what that looks like but i i think that the the despair actually i that you have to kind of go through a little bit of the despair and then at the end hopefully get to the point where you're like no you know what like there is a a way forward and I can like I can do that by you know drinking that poison and then coming out the other end stronger I guess so like don't stay in the despair but but go through it it's a part of the process but one of many parts yes I think it's important to go through it and so that on the other end you come to the the way that you can have the biggest impact that you can and like in your own liberation and the liberation of others and I think also just like not feeling bad about taking breaks and having fun sometimes, which I think a lot of activists are, myself included, very bad at doing. But like, it is literally, it is imperative that you take care of yourself. I mean, Adorno would say that all fun is the road to fascism. So I don't know. Oh no. <laughs> well then, 
Oh no. <laughs> um, let, let's all reject the door now together. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, um, speaking of doing things and getting stuff done, we're in the midst of a primary. Really? Which is leading to an even bigger election later. Wait, I didn't know that. You know, what's great about America is the elections. They never stop. They never stop. Never stop stopping. They're just on top of each other all the time. <laughs> it's like being buried under like a thousand pounds of elections. We love our sequels. Oh, God, don't we? Um, <laughs> but elections, a lot of people will say like, you know, you're despairing about politics right now. Either you don't have a right to despair unless you voted in the last election or something like that, which is always very helpful. I love being um, shamed. Uh or if you want to do something, get involved in the election and only the election. What role do elections actually have in changing the world for the better? Some, none, a bunch? Ooh, um, let's see. I think it really depends on the election and I think it depends on the candidate because voting is a tactic, it is not a strategy. Like it is a tactic to creating change, it is not a strategy for creating change. And I make that very clear in the book because I'm like, there's a tactic, like a strategy is an overall game plan that you have for changing something, right? Like, okay, we want to uh, end capitalism and we're going to do that by getting Medicare for all. And we're going to do that by decommodifying parts of society, right? But within that, you have certain tactics about how you're going to get that done. You can protest, you can letter write, you can... Uh, do direct action, you can do mutual aid, you can vote. These are all tactics that we have. And I think it's very important to remember that all you are doing when you, when you are voting for someone, you are helping to decide the conditions under which we are fighting. Like that's what mm. voting is. So I think that I don't have any illusions that like anyone, I mean, I, I, I have personal favorites, but like, I don't, I don't want to necessarily like endorse on the podcast, I guess, but maybe I should. I don't that know. Maybe a fun exclusive, unless you just did it a bunch and then it'd be like just the first. The first I think if you follow, exclusive, right? Yeah. I think if you follow my Instagram stories, you know who I'm voting for, but I, um, I'm a member of DSA, like go figure. Um, but yeah, so I guess who, I don't have any illusions that like we're going to elect any one of these people and things are magically going to get better or like things are magically gonna like the problems are gonna go away because there's always gonna be a fight whether like with people in like already in power or with you know uh with us right like there's always gonna be a fight that's gonna happen and i think that if you are voting if you plan on voting in 2020 really stop and think like what overall strategy the like what is your overall strategy for changing things and how does the person that you vote for fit into that strategy and what is your strategy going to be and like what are your next tactics going to be after you vote like the day after the election like what is the next step even if your person does get in because you need to continue to push electeds even when they're in there and all your hopefully what you're doing is you you put someone in there that you like so that you can push them in the direction that you want to push them in yeah. like, and you keep pushing <laughs> but there's a lot of elections where things don't seem to really change because the the people who are on the ballot or on the ticket are kind of like what you were saying earlier like just different different little rulers that we get to pick and like yeah. d- and that kind of stuff you know like i this is and this is where i mean i personally vote I think that it is important for people to vote but i also think that it's very valid to not vote because of all the ills that are happening i think that if you don't vote hopefully there's other organizing that like you're doing or ways that you're trying to change stuff because like 
being checked out completely is like not a great thing. Like when I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but um, do it. The coffee is really hitting my brain, like yeah, right in the it, center. <laughs> it got me about ten minutes ago, which I feel yeah. like is going to be very clear when we listen to this recording. Again. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I can see through time. There's that old Emma Goldman line, right? Like, if voting was illegal, if, if, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. Right. And I do think there's a lot of truth to that, but they often do try to make it illegal. Like, if you look at oh, some, yeah. if you if you look at some place like Georgia, like they just are throwing away black people's vote. Like, they just like there's a reason that they you know that we tried for so long to like, keep like black people and indigenous people and women from voting because that actually would maybe change stuff if, yeah. you, if everyone actually had the right to vote and everyone actually voted like that actually maybe would like that would change stuff and like our system has never been set up for that to be a reality like oh, yeah. you yeah. know i think what is it um 40 of eligible voters voted in the last election or yeah. something like that and like donald trump got fewer votes than mitt romney did because yeah. nobody went yeah yeah and like and and i mean we don't we don't live in a democracy so like we can if we can stop pretending that we do, that would really make me very happy. <laughs> like, we just don't, you know, like, the Electoral College is literally a way for, like, like, like you want to talk about not just, like, subtext, but just text. Like, that is actually just a way for the ruling class to, like, perpetuate itself. Yeah. Like, that's literally what it is. So if we could just stop pretending that we have a, a functioning democracy, that would really be great. <laughs> then maybe we would get some stuff done. Which, you know, I think that's a that's an initiation that a lot of people need to go through. Though people are also, yeah. I mean, what is it, like, there are now five, six, seven states that have voted to give their electoral college votes to whoever wins the popular vote yeah. now. Of course, they're all states that tend to go blue anyway, so I don't yeah. know how much that's going to change. But, um, you know, love the spirit of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're part of the eco-socialist working group in the... Democratic Socialists of America NYC chapter. Yes. It's the longest name in history. And congratulations on that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, How important and how useful do you think... um, Actually, let's let's put it in a broader sense. I think a lot of people, when they approach witchcraft, they do it in this very self-directed and individual way. Like, a lot of the witches I meet are anarchists. Mm. How vital do you think it is to do things, not just as part of some larger movement, but actually in the sense of, like, an organized mutual assisted sort of way i'm being unclear but like the sense no i feel you yeah like how important is it as a witch or as a witch identifying person to do either politics or witchcraft with other people sure i mean i think i think if you can do activism with a group or witchcraft with i mean witchcraft i think is a little different because i tend to do my magic uh solitary like i have sometimes groups that i practice with but for the most part i i do kind of keep my spirituality to myself and like kind of do it on my own so you know a spiritual practice that that is gonna i think your mileage is gonna vary depending on what kind of person you are or like yeah. what kind of stuff you're trying to do i mean different workings might require big groups to do or or things like that but i i think it's perfectly fine to have like an individualized like private practice that you that you keep to but i think if you're doing activism like if you can find a group to work with, I think it's almost like crucial that you do work within a group because it's unfair to yourself to make you do all of the work all the time. Like the ideally we're trying to build a movement and ideally we're trying to make really huge shifts and changes. And 
there really is only so much that an individual can do. Yeah. So if you are able to work with a group, I think it's like indispensable because, you know, you have comrades and allies to like lean on when you just can't get the work done that day and they can lean on you when they can't. And there's a, um, you know, there's more work being done. There's more emails being sent. There's more rallies being held. There's more, there's more stuff happening. And that happens through group work and group action. Yeah. Uh, and also ideally, like, I think, I think that this is something, maybe this is a bit of a tangent or a bit bit to the side, but I think that we have to become really used to the idea that, like, if we're trying to, like, change everything and if we're trying to have a mass movement, like, we're going to be organizing and we're going to be talking to people that we don't necessarily like, like, we don't like all the same TV shows and we don't listen to the same music and they're not cool and we don't think that they're doing it quote-unquote right. Mm -hmm. But, like, if we're if they're comrades in the struggle and if we're all like on the same page, like about what kind of world we're trying to build, like that's the thing that matters. And like getting along with people is something we have to get better at doing. I think (laughs) just in politics in general, like Mm. people who are of course are on our side, right? Like I'm not saying like, let's shake hands with fascists. I'm saying like people who like you're trying to organize and trying to get on your side. Like it's not always going to be people that you, uh, necessarily like want to hang out with but it's like you you know i think the phrase you use in the book is people who are dreaming the same dream yeah yeah that's <laughs> cool thanks past sarah you said it better than i did <laughs> oh gosh i always love the past self as the ancestor that you would work with the least for me anyway because you know it's that whole thing of like whoever i was two days ago was is a clown and a coward um <laughs> I think this is basically, I think we've covered a lot of the things that I've written down in my notes. I might have held you for like quite a long time. No, this this. Has so been thank you awesome. for your patience and for being um, so wonderful and, and, and giving these thoughtful answers to these questions. You have a book launch coming up. And if everything goes right technologically, this episode will go out before that book launch Woo-hoo. on Wednesday the 13th. The 13th at Powerhouse Books in Brooklyn from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. And I am led to understand that there is going to be a ritual at that event Mm. can you talk about that at all or does it have to be a big old surprise i kind of want okay i kind of want to keep some of it a surprise but i will talk around it as much as i can okay so um i think there's been a lot of talk in like the press and the community and all that kind of stuff about uh public hexing and like uh you know hexing trump and hexing kavanaugh and like binding trump and that kind of stuff. How do you actually? Can we? Sorry, I don't no, want to derail because right. I right. wanted to ask you about this, and I feel like we covered it a little bit when we talked about um, the idea of like protest as a kind of public ritual. Mm-hmm. Though who knows if that actually got captured because of the technical problems we had with the recording. <laughs> um, thanks, Mercury Retrograde. Uh, but like, how do you feel about like just like first of all, big public hacking, but also just like the idea of like is it acceptable political activity? to curse your political enemies. Is that okay? Is it useful? Um, I think it is okay. <laughs> um, I think, it, yeah, I mean, I I have kind of a complicated, I guess I have a, com- a complicated set of feelings about, like, uh, doing, like, public hexing rituals because I think, on the one hand, it's, like, I guess, like, the simple answer is, like, I think it's fine. Like, I think if you want to... Like, do, morally it's okay. I think it more, it's morally fine, and I think, like, you know... 
it's kind of like punching a Nazi with a ghost fist. Yeah, I think it's fine. Like, I think if you want to get together with your friends and do a big hex on Trump or a big hex on Kavanaugh or, like, wh- whoever you want to do, like, I think that's fine. Like, do it. Have fun. Go go for it. I think um, there's something to be said for, like, it's very difficult to curse or hex or do, uh, you know, you know, ill magic, even binding people, like, who are very big, prominent public figures because so much power and so much magic is kind of around them that mm. it's going to be a lot harder for you to actually work on them than it would be, like, somebody in your immediate circle, right? Also, just, like, functionally, like, I find that if I'm doing magic for a person or on a person, like, if I have an object of theirs, that's going to make it work a lot better. Yeah. If I... I don't have an object that once was that once belonged to Donald Trump. So like, you know, I don't have that magical connection the same way that I would have with like a person that, you know, that I actually know or have met. Right. Yeah. So, um, there's also just like the functionally, like that's difficult to do. So there's a bit of like, it, it's on the one hand, I think it does make us look a tiny bit weird when like we do a big public hex and then obviously it doesn't really work. Yeah. Or, or in people's minds, it doesn't really work, right? Uh, like, you know, Kavanaugh still gets on the Supreme Court. Trump is still president. It doesn't ma- necessarily make that look great. But yeah. I think that, um, again, like, what, something I'm trying to do with the book and, like, something I'm trying to, like, enter into the conversation when we talk about, like, politics and witchcraft and magic is, like, um, political magic doesn't just have to be, like, an actual literal spell that you do with your friends. It doesn't have to be, like, a group ritual that you all engage in. Like, it can be... It can be anything, and as long as it is done with like, like the intent and with the, um, you know, with the knowledge of like the mechanics of how magic works, like yeah. I think that anything can be an act of political magic. But yeah, so so I I didn't want to talk about uh, hexing or binding in the book of public figures because I was just like, this is being talked about a lot. This is getting yeah. a lot of play. And that's like a big discussion that like uh, that's it's it's, it's a thorny one that I didn't really want to get into the book because I was just like I want to concentrate on like expanding our definition of what right. all this is yeah, um, but yeah I think like if you want to keep if you want to do it like it does it can't hurt like you yeah. know, it can't can't hurt if you if you want to like juice your activism with a bit of you know witchcraft right with a bit of a bit of hexing or a bit of binding you know of of people that you're that you're targeting yeah but it wouldn't like once again a tactic not a strategy exactly yeah okay so back to where we were just a moment ago Mm -hmm. you've got this book launch coming up on the 13th seven to seven to nine seven nine at power house power no that's okay and Powell's City of Books. No, uh, Power. Oh, yeah, that's not, that's not in this city. No, nope, different city. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm by flying the way, all the way to Portland. We're in New York City, by the way. I feel like I should have established that before we did any of this. Um, Cue, like, the track of, like, honking horn, like, yeah. siren. I'm walking here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this ritual, though, you don't want to talk about it explicitly, but you will talk around it. You said, you promised. Yes. Um, okay, so... Yeah, like I said, a lot of play and talk about um, binding and hexing public figures. And I think that, you know, that's all good. I think that that's fine. Like I said, you know, do it if you want. But I think almost more than like hexing or binding figures that are around right now and in the public eye, I think something actually maybe more needed right now is um, 
an exorcism and like exercising the demons of the past. Hell yes. Uh, so I think that like what we really need right now is to like clear out all this bullshit that is like still hanging around and the ghosts that are still plaguing our politics and our, our minds and our imaginations. Right. So, um, the book, the ritual itself is going to be two parts. It's going to be an exorcism of the past and an exorcism of, you know, the demonic forces in our politics that are still hanging over us to this day. And it is going to be uh, a blessing and an entry into the new world that we will hopefully all be building together. So um, with my book is like a symbol of what a part of what that new world will look like. So um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited and I'm really nervous because I've never done a big ritual like this in front of people before, but I think it's going to be a great show and I think it's going to be, I hope to... Again, like I, I, I think exorcism is something we really need to be doing more of. So hopefully it maybe this will be the next memeable ritual that people can do. <laughs> I love it. Well, okay, so that's very exciting. Congratulations so much on this book. It's Thank amazing. You. People should buy it. Everyone should buy it. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about all this. And hooray. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is a great interview. I really enjoyed talking with you. I am... Uh, this was like one of my favorite interviews I've done on this book so thank you hell yeah okay um, cool this is awesome thank you um I guess oh should I plug can I just say so plug can, everything you want plugs here we are um my Instagram handle is at city mystic that's the only social media that I do so follow me there um I also have a website uh sarahlyons.org cause .com was taken so uh there there already is one well I I don't know if it's related to this, but whenever I Google my name, there's a Fallout character named Sarah Lyons. I've seen this. And we don't look anything alike, but I'm like, I've never, I never played Fallout, so I need someone to, like, explain to me exactly who she is. I know she's, like, part of the Brotherhood of Steel, and I think Liam Neeson plays her dad in the video games, so that's cool. But, like, I... Oh, my God. It's like you're from Taken or something. Yeah. Um, well, I think she does... I don't know if this is even a spoiler. I think she dies at one point, but now there's she's back. I don't know, because I've just... Whenever I Google my name, now I'm, like, brought updates about this, this video game character. But anyways, so SarahLyons.com was taken. SarahLyons.org. That is my website. That's you. Uh, and that has links to articles and things that I've done, so you can check that all out there. And uh, buy the book. Write a book, join the DSA, probably. Yeah, um, come by the Eco-Socialist Working Group sometime. Join the fight. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, thank right. you so much. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Sarah Lyons for taking the time to talk to me about her great book. Be sure to check out Revolutionary Witchcraft, which is available now in stores, and to check out more about Sarah Lyons at sarahlyons.org and at City Mystic on Instagram. Well, this has been the first episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Listen next week, and we'll be looking into a listener question about inspiriting statues and other inanimate objects. If you have a question for our research department, you can submit that at cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle, or on our Twitter and Instagram, which are both at witchhassle. And if you're interested in supporting the show, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash witchhassle, which will enable you to listen to ad-free full episodes and give you access to all sorts of other goodies. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll catch you next time.